Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. You're welcome to follow along. If you didn't bring your own Bible, there are Red Pew Bibles there in front of you. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Living to please God. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We mentioned if you have any somewhat older kids that you'd like to be out during this time, Jordan is hanging out in the youth office. But we are, um, if you're new with us from the last few weeks, we're in the season of Lent, the season of the church year, looking forward to the cross and resurrection that we celebrate at Easter. And as we are seeking to live into that season, it is a time when the church often focuses on repentance and sin. And so what we've been doing is taking this This idea of the seven deadly sins, which the church has used to try to summarize these different directions that sin can lead us astray. Um, They're not deadly, as we've said, because they're the worst things we can imagine. Rather, they are deadly because they are the first things that often lead us into sin. Another name for them historically was the cardinal sins, meaning the different directions that sin can lead us astray. So let's pray together. And then let's dig into what is, in many ways, a particularly challenging one of those seven deadly sins. Father, I pray that you would be near to us, that you would speak both your truth and your grace to us as we wrestle with your word and with our own hearts. Pray that you would just be near to us now in your spirit. Be with all of us sinners as we are under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about what is probably the hardest in a number of hard topics for some of us, and one that can be challenging for us to know how to address, and that is lust. To talk about lust is to talk about an area that we often shy away from. It touches on things that are very intimate and at times that can be filled with shame or pain or embarrassment for some of us. And as we do that, I want to just mention a few things up front. One is that lust and the sexual sin that it touches on are not different from other kinds of sins. I think there are those sometimes in the church and in the world that feel like it is the ultimate forbidden fruit, that it is somehow uniquely bad or sinful, and that is not how scripture treats it. All sin is equally deadly. 
Indeed, it was interesting to me um, as I was preparing to, to think about this topic and reading some of the different discussions by Christians throughout history, how a number of people, from Thomas Aquinas to C.S. Lewis, argued that sins like lust and gluttony in some ways were the most normal of the deadly sins, which is to say that God created human beings with a desire for food and drink, and he created them with a desire for sexuality and intimacy, and that while those things are still destructive and sinful, there is something, um, something about them that that's different because they are just warping those good desires that God gave us. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. And I don't say that to excuse anything. We're going to have to say some hard things. But I say that because I want to be clear that sexuality isn't some special punching bag or something in the Bible. We should acknowledge and wrestle with our sins of pride and greed and envy just as much as a sin like lust. At the same time, while some of us feel like that topic of sexual sin is perhaps the worst thing, um, others of us feel like Christianity shouldn't speak to it at all. There is a resentment in our culture that God would have anything to say about sex. We feel like he should stay out of the bedroom, people will say. And that sounds kind of good, I think, to our modern ears, but that really just doesn't make sense. Sex and sexuality are a huge part of our lives and our world. I mean, just think about, it, it shoots through our media and our political debates and the personal lives of almost all of us in one way or another. I mean, it, it affects people's lives. It creates human life, right? It creates new human beings. It can do immense damage to human beings. And if God is going to... Um, if he made us, right, and made our sexuality, which we're going to say he did in a minute, why then would we think that he isn't going to say anything on this topic? It just doesn't make sense for us to say at the same time that God should not care at all about this thing that we really care a lot about. And one last note then before we dive into the topic. Um, something I pointed out in each of our sermons so far and want to maybe especially stress today is that all of these sins are things that we're addressing as things that we struggle with. We don't discuss sin as something out there in the world. We're talking about something that each of us has to fight and wrestle through in our own hearts. Now, yes, different sins will challenge different people in different ways. Some people are going to struggle more in one area than another. And lust is maybe noteworthy, too, in that it is particularly acute for those of us that are younger, so I'm told. Although, um, although I've also known people well past the age where you would think that those fires had cooled who still seem to let it rule their minds and hearts. But this is something that all of us are affected by. And I think it's important to say that because many of us in our hearts feel this sense that we are the only one who struggles when we're talking about areas of sexual sin. Right? I am affected by brokenness in this area. Each of us is in different ways. And so we're not about condemning some peculiar weird sinners out there as we talk through this, but we're talking about a battle that all of us confront. But that said, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about sex in the Bible, as we need to understand that to talk about lust. And then we're going to talk about lust, and then we're going to talk about love, lust's alternative. So sex, lust, and love. Not my normal kind of three sermon points, but... Um, <laughs> But let's, let's go. First, sex. All right? 
lust, um, we said sin is disordered desire, and lust, as we're using it this morning, is disordered desire in terms of our sexuality and intimacy. Disordered desire in terms of our sexuality and intimacy. Now, the word lust can be used to describe other desires sometimes. I can lust after, like, a nice car or that piece of chocolate cake. Um, And the Bible even uses the word lust that way. Um, It can just mean desire, but we're in many ways discussing those sorts of desires and other topics, right? Like gluttony or greed or envy. This morning, we're especially focusing on lust and its narrower meaning of um, sex and intimacy. And to understand that, though, we first need to understand sexuality in Scripture. So let's start with a couple of simple observations, and the first is that God made sex. Sex itself is not a sinful thing, but is part of his design. In Genesis 2, in this verse that we often read at weddings, it says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And that being united, right, that's about more than just sex. But it is about a husband and wife becoming one flesh, right? I mean, right there at the beginning of creation, that is a part of God's design. And more than that, God makes sex to be a good thing. He makes it pleasurable and desirable and beautiful. We really need to appreciate that, I think, in this discussion, because if we don't say that first, people get the wrong idea. And it's tricky to address, so I'm just going to read to you a passage from the Song of Songs. This is a poem um, between a man and a woman in the Bible. Um, And I'm just going to start reading from chapter 7. The man is speaking first, and he says, How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And then the woman responds, May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. That's the Bible, y'all. I mean, and that's not just an isolated incident in the Bible. Um, In the book of Proverbs, warning against adultery, it describes the alternative like this. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. I read those things just to say that God made sex, and he made it good and beautiful. The Bible is not against sexuality, but it does put a couple of boundaries around sex. First, it says sex is meant to be for the other person's good, not just for us. We are to be seeking the good of others in our sexuality, just like in every other part of our life. Paul, in our scripture reading for this morning, from 1 Thessalonians, he calls them to pursue sexual purity, and he gives two reasons, and the first one is this. He says, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Sex is not meant to be simply about serving my desires, but about seeking the good and serving another person as well. We shouldn't use it to wrong or take advantage of someone, Paul says. Sex in our world, I think, is fundamentally a selfish impulse. 
that when our culture talks about it, it is ultimately, although they don't put it so baldly, about finding some person that I can convince to help me feel nice. That's maybe at its most obvious among young people, when you see, you know, these stories about hookup culture and dating apps and things like that. But it can be true um, for all of us. I mean, it can even be true in marriage in a sense, right? This isn't just, I mean, but you can be selfish and self-serving even there. And the reason for that is that sex has an immense power to shape people for good and for evil. We all get that in its extreme form. Many of the most terrible things that people can do to other people are sexual things. But that's true in subtler ways, too. What happens behind closed doors among consenting adults still has an enormous power to shape and wound people. Even when it's not actually happening, you think about, like, like the cruelest jabs of teenagers, right? Jabs about beauty or prowess are so often rooted in assaults on people's sexuality. And because sex is so powerful, Scripture puts the boundary of marriage around it. Not that marriage is foolproof. You can still be self-serving and hurt people in marriage, but it is the closest that we can come in a human institution— Binding two lives together in a way that limits the potential harm and maximizes the potential joy. So sex is meant to build up the other person and seek their good. And sex is meant to glorify God. That's the other reason that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this is not just Paul saying, you know, God made a rule and you better follow it. Rather, what he's saying is that God designed the world to work in a certain good way. When we refuse to operate in that system, what we do is we're replacing God's good design with our selfish design instead. We're replacing him with ourselves. Which really helps us recognize something about that statement. Um, So lust is idolatry, like we've been saying every week, right? All sin is a certain sort of idolatry. But I think we're often mistaken about what the idol is. What we like to think is that the idol in lust is this other person. Dante pictures lust that way in his Inferno. He kind of confuses it with romantic love. And so the people that are in the lust circle of hell are all the really passionate, you know, lovers like Anthony and Cleopatra. And I think we like that idea because it makes lust feel noble. But I don't think that that's true. Sexual sin is ultimately the idolatry of ourselves and our appetites. It's about fulfilling our selfish desires, like we said, and it's about putting ourselves at the center of things. Oscar Wilde, the author who was himself very experienced on the topic of sexual immorality, once commented that everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. We tell ourselves that we desire something because of its beauty, But to really love something's beauty makes us want to serve it and see it flourish and seek its good. What we long for in lust is not beauty, but the possession of beauty ourselves. It's to see this thing in the world and not just appreciate it, right? I mean, God appreciates beauty in the world and it's glorifying to him. Lust is what happens when instead of seeing that beauty and praising God, we see that beauty and then seek to take it for ourselves which point it's worth noting that we're moving from a discussion of sex in general to a discussion of lust. 
We're not just talking about sex out there, but sex in terms of our hearts and minds. So let's talk about that directly. First, it's worth noting that the Bible warns not just against wrong sexual action, but against wrong sexual longings that we entertain in our hearts. We saw it in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul warns that we should live not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And Jesus, likewise, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives these memorable words. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is lust? It is entertaining desires in our hearts and minds that would be wrong for us to do in our actions. It's entertaining desires in our hearts and minds that would be wrong for us to do in action. Last week when we talked about wrath, we noted that wrath is not that moment of anger you feel when something frustrating happens, that that's just going to happen to you, but wrath rests on what you do with that moment of anger. If you feel it and control it and let it go, then you are fine and you're not in the sin of wrath. But if you um, entertain it and let it fester in your heart, that's where the sin of wrath comes in. And the same is true of lust. Lust is not what happens when you notice somebody's physical attractiveness. It is not what happens when you meet someone and feel drawn to them. It is what you do with that desire. We can entertain those desires in a lot of different ways. So let's just try to name a few of them. The most obvious one is that we can simply entertain those desires for people in our minds, through fantasies, through imagined encounters. While we might not have the foolishness or the courage to act on them, we console ourselves by keeping them safely up here, where nobody else we feel can know. In our world, we can also feed those desires in more direct ways. Um, we just have to direct it head-on, but one of the biggest challenges in our modern world is the absolute prevalence of pornography. It is an internet search away. Pornography is not the only way we can struggle with lust. I think sometimes we just conflate the two in the church when we talk about it, but it is a massive way that we struggle. Basically, everyone in America, if you look at the statistics, has been exposed to pornography at some point in their lives. Um, one survey I saw that was pretty recent said that two-thirds of men and one-third of women in America watched it um, regularly. They define that as at least monthly. So if you total up all the traffic on the internet, 30% of it is pornography. And if that is a place that you struggle, a couple of thoughts for you. First of all, um, man, we could say a lot more, but first it is worth thinking through taking steps to deprive yourself of those opportunities if that's an area that you struggle. If you're wrestling to stop habitual pornography viewing, move your computer, get some accountability software on your phone, do something to limit your access to this stuff, and then two, talk to somebody, right? I mean, a friend or somebody wise that you know, a brother or sister in Christ, um, to share that struggle and to seek help in walking through it. We could say more there because it's a huge issue, but there's also other ways that we can entertain lust in our world bigger than just that. In the first place, there's a kind of low-grade pornography that you don't have to go looking on the internet for because it's all around us, right? You just, you watch a show on HBO. I mean, you watch television advertisements sometimes, and you see things that, you know, 40 years ago you would have had to show an ID and pay a cover charge at a strip club in order to get access to. And lust can manifest in other ways, too, and one of the most common but ignored, I think, is our 
our fantasies and our entertaining, not a desire just for sexual release, but for sexual intimacy. Right? Sex is about more than just this thing that happens in bed. It spills over into the whole of our romantic lives. It's about intimacy, and that means that there are desires that we can entertain that while we tell ourselves they're not explicit, are still very much lust. That includes entertaining inappropriate relationships with people outside of marriage. Lust can be the sin of that um, overly flirtatious friendship with a coworker. It can be the sin of the fantasized spouse that you keep in your mind and you don't do anything, you know, explicit there, but still you're constantly, like, living with that person. It can be the sin of the trashy romance novel. There is a sort of relational pornography that is also common in our world. I... A little while back, I remember I was sitting at this coffee shop and heard these two women talking in horrified terms about um, pornography on the internet, and I looked over at them, and the one lady's like leaning in very angry on her copy of Fifty Shades Darker, right, (laughs) sitting on the table. And it's just like, all of that stuff can be caught up in the umbrella of lust. Let me pause for a minute then and address an objection that some of us, I think, feel when we hear all of this talk, which is... Is that really so bad? There is an idea. It's always been in our culture, but maybe the recent incarnation was most famously put forward by Larry Flint, the guy who published Hustler, that lust is good for people somehow. He argued that Hustler, that pornography, provided a release valve for sexual desire. And so people would stick in marriages because they could escape, right, into this kind of fantasy world, and that that somehow made them better, right? Um... And even if that isn't true, people feel like, well, is this really a big deal? So in the first place, the Bible does not view lust that way. In both 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Timothy 2, the command is to flee from sexual immorality. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 3 of our text. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and avoid all sexual immorality. Bible's calling is not to kind of entertain it in here and just make sure it doesn't creep out into our lives. The Bible's calling is for us to run in the other direction, to be seeking to make our hearts and lives holy. And the reason for that calling is that human beings are not pressure relief valves. There is not a disconnect between what happens in here and what happens out here in the world. What is inside us naturally spills out into our words and actions and lust just as much um, that way as anything else. I mean, lust changes how we view other human beings. When I hear men say demeaning things about women that are born of lust, that is not just boyish banter or locker room talk. That reflects something twisted in how they are coming to view women. They have turned them into objects rather than people, and that's going to affect how they treat them. When people entertain... um, that perfect spouse in their mind, right? That actually affects how they view their actual husband and wife. I mean, your imaginary partner, they're never tired, and they're never grouchy, and their breath never smells bad in the morning, and that actually creates discontentment with your actual partner. If you don't think pornography affects people's lives, we live in a world where a heartbreaking number of teenage girls in one recent survey report that they have engaged in oral sex and have not yet had their first kiss. And there's never been an affair that didn't, in a sense, start with lust. 
Lust affects us in all kinds of ways. And it affects other people, too. I mean, men and women view themselves differently because of the lust directed at them as well. It shows up in the unrealistic ideas we have about body image. It shows up in the way that people willingly let themselves be treated as objects. Remember the story I heard on the radio a little while back um, where they were interviewing this, this girl in college who was engaged in kind of hookup culture and she expressed it, how discontented she was with that culture and, and how much she just didn't like it, but she still did it. And when asked why, she said, well, I guess it would, it's better to be, um, you know, to be used than for people to view you as useless. It's the reason that, according to a survey I saw while researching for this study, many young women would rather win a Miss America pageant than a Nobel Peace Prize. All of that, because instead of that pressure of our idea, Scripture's insistence is that we become what we worship. The more we make something an idol, the more it shapes us and makes us like that idol. And the more we worship sex and our sexual gratification more that shapes us in dark ways. So all of that is really hard, I know. Hard in different ways for different ones of us. But that is a conversation that's important. That said, Christianity is never about just kind of beating us up over sin. It is important for us to acknowledge the truth of sin. But what we don't need is just to stop the negative. What Christianity calls us to is replace it with something good. So let's finish by shifting from talking about lust and spending some time talking about love. Scripture always sees sin and righteousness as two sides of a coin. You don't just move away from the bad stuff. You do it by seeking to move toward the good stuff. So what should we pursue instead of lust? First, we should pursue love for our neighbor, love for other people. Part of the problem with lust is that it objectifies people. And we need to learn that, learn to make them then not into objects, but back into human beings with all of the dignity and value that that requires. Um, I remember David Foster Wallace was this essayist and author. He died 10 years ago. Um, but I vividly remember being like 20 years old and reading this essay by him back when I was in college. It was an essay recounting his experience covering the Adult Entertainment Expo, which is this big annual convention for porn. And Wallace is not a Christian, and he had no moral objection to the idea of pornography. But the essay is this gut punch, because Wallace in those days realizes the humanity of these people and how destructive what they were doing was to their humanity. I remember this one scene in particular where he's he describes he's sitting in this hotel room and he's talking to this director and these actresses that are with this director. Um, and all of the actresses are just like sitting on the couch, he says, with this kind of glass-eyed, like dazed expression on their faces. Until this moment when one of them starts telling him about this puppy that she had just gotten. And suddenly she lights up and he says there's like this life behind her eyes. And he realizes suddenly like this girl is like 19 years old. And then after that moment, that spark of humanness, she suddenly like almost catches herself, he says, and then retreats back into that hardened cynicism, that kind of jaded place that the industry she was working in had forced on her. And he says he almost broke down crying on that couch because in that moment he suddenly caught this glimpse of this human being, right, that was being affected by what was happening. The more you see somebody like that as a human being, the harder it is 
to sexualize and objectify them. Let me just name one other specific side effect of that objectifying in the church. I think it's common at times, especially among Christian men, if they discuss the topic of lust, to talk about it as if women are somehow the problem. Um, They paint women as threats, as potential sexual temptations, and that sounds kind of sensible, I think mainly when a bunch of men are just sitting with other men talking about it, but but that actually creates significant problems too, uh, both for women and for men. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, This is his calling. He says, Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So note, he doesn't say treat them as threats. He says treat them as sisters. Give them dignity and respect and the value that you would show to somebody in your own family. So part of fighting lust means learning to love our neighbor, to view them as a human being and to value them on those grounds. And another part of it rests on loving God's call for our lives. In our reading, listen to verses 3 and 4. It says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. It's the end of that that I'm thinking about here. We learn to control ourselves, he says, in a way that is holy and honorable. Paul's describing something we do, self-control, but he's saying that self-control rests on this new view that we have of things, a new way of viewing things. We obey God because we come to see that his ways are holy and honorable, that they're truly good. Part of the lie of sin is convincing us that it is actually the most desirable thing, that God's calling is kind of ugly and unappealing, and he's about denying us the good things in Scripture calls us to recognize the true goodness of God's calling on our lives instead. In the book of Proverbs, the king is warning his son against adultery, calling him to be faithful. And here's how he frames that warning. He says, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she's bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Now notice the king does not deny that there's pleasure that's on offer. But rather, he acknowledges it and then calls us on to realize that the pleasure that's on offer is fleeting, and the consequences of the choice that he's being tempted to make far outweigh the pleasure. Owning the truth about sin is one of the best ways to fight it. We often kind of keep our sin hidden away, trying never to confront it. But sin always looks best in the shadows. When you pull it out into the light of day, it is a shriveled and hollow thing. One of the habits that we need to cultivate is the habit of telling ourselves the truth, I think. Not just about lust, but in general. We always have this voice that's telling us things inside of us. And sometimes those things are true, and sometimes they aren't. And when it is lying to us, we need to name those lies and preach the truth back. So when that voice is calling us to lust, we need to respond with the truth. When it tells us, look how nice this would feel... We need to speak back that it is a fleeting pleasure and brings immense shame and loss in its wake. When it tells us to objectify someone, we need to speak back the value and worth that that human being has. When it tells us that nothing is greater than our craving for satisfaction or intimacy, we need to speak back to it that the truth that God and his glory are far greater than those.
those earthly pleasures. We need to love our neighbor, and we need to love God's calling. But we also, in our struggle, need to experience the love of God. We are all broken by sin. And we are all, to some extent, broken sexually. Some of us feel that brokenness a lot more than others, but we're all there. And I know, as we talk about all of this, that there is a weight and a burden on many of our hearts as we feel the shame and guilt of things we've done in the past, the things we still struggle with in the present. So let me speak two truths to you, if that is you. And look, almost all of us, right, that is us. Let me just speak two truths to you, if that's where you are. One is that in Christianity, you are not defined by your past, and that includes your sexual past. Yes, for some of us, there are wounds that we will bear because of our past. And yes, for some of us, there are consequences that we have to sort through in our lives because of our past. But our guilt and our shame are not defining us any longer in Christ. The thing that defines us is God's love. God describes himself to Isaiah like this. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. That means erases them. I blot out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sin no more. As if God somehow says, it's it's as if I've forgotten even that that sin was there. As the book of Romans so joyfully put it as we were preaching through it, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Jesus, God does not look at you and see the things that you have done. God looks at you and only sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is true. And so is this. God's grace also applies to your present struggle. There's this thing that can happen when we confront our struggles with really any of the seven deadly sins, lust or any of these others, these deep heart issues we have. We hear a sermon on it, and we think to ourselves, all right, yeah, you know, that's, that's wrong. So what I'm going to do is stop. That's the plan. Just no more lust, ever. And um, <laughs> that impulse, in a sense, is actually good, all right? It is, in a sense, a good thing to, to have that be our response. Grace doesn't remove the reality that we need to work hard to fight for sanctification, and there are victories and growth that you can experience along the way. But if that is your resolution, at some point, you will fail. And the question is, how do you view that failure? There's something that's easy to miss in how Paul starts these instructions to the Thessalonians. But look at verse 1. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So Paul frames the command in this really weird way. He says, look, we called you to pursue holiness, and you are pursuing holiness. But then Paul says, do it more and more. So he's rejoicing that these believers are seeking to live for Jesus, but he's also admitting, in a sense, that they fail, right? That you don't grow more and more in something that you're perfect at. Um, There's a few verses later, um, he tells them that they need to learn to control themselves in the way that he's talking about, which means that for some of them, they haven't learned it yet. And I point that out because we can take this all-or-nothing approach to holiness. We set out to do it perfectly, and maybe we do it for a while, and we fail, and then we give up. 
and we conclude, well, clearly that failure is what defines us, and we can't do it. That is not how God's calling works. He does not call us to perfection, but he calls us to a direction. Not perfection, but a direction. And here's what I mean. This is what it, so, so here's what, you wake up in the morning, and your calling as a Christian is to say, right? You get out of bed and you say, I'm going to seek to fight sin. All sin at every moment. And that is what your goal should be. Then during the day, as you engage in that, sometimes you're going to succeed, sometimes you're going to fail. And the thing is that that does not mean that you're failing as a Christian. That is actually what the Christian walk looks like. Again, that's not permission to sin. This is so hard because saying that you will struggle is not the same thing as saying you don't need to struggle, right? <laughs> like, um, but it does give us hope in the midst of our struggle that God is with us, that he covers our failings, and by his grace, he is sanctifying us. He's teaching us to turn from sin and turn from lust and live lives of love that he's called us to. Ultimately, deep in our hearts, we lust because we have these questions that we want answered. We want to know, am I beautiful? Am I significant? Or am I desirable? Or am I strong? And our longing for intimacy and our longing for sex is in many ways a product of those kinds of questions. But the thing is, our sexuality cannot ultimately answer those questions. The ultimate answer to those questions is experienced in the love of God. It is God's love that speaks to us that we are beautiful because he created us with his glory and creativeness. It is his love that speaks to us that we are significant, that we are his, his sons and daughters, his image bearers, put in the world to serve him. It's his love that tells us that we're desirable. He gave himself up for us. It is his love that tells us that we are strong, that he's working in us, and through us to redeem the world. The more we appreciate that love and let it answer those longings in our hearts, the more that lust starts to lose its grip. It's like opening up a blind in a room and letting the light come in. It chases the darkness away. We were made for far greater things than the entertainments that our lust offers. We were made with divine love as we experience it, we become more and more like the one who loves us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and grace for our past, for our present, and for our future. And I pray that you would be teaching us as we experience that forgiveness to struggle and fight to obey you, that you would grow us and give us victories and give us a sense of freedom from our past and that you would be near to us as we seek to fight against sin and grow more and more to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, who perfectly loved us. Amen.